The run-up to the 2016 presidential election really illustrated how vulnerable our most venerated journalistic outlets are to this new kind of information warfare, as Andy called it, that reporters are a targeted adversary of foreign and domestic actors who really want to harm our democracy, and that they need a plan amid everything else that's going on for how to deal with hack and leaks and other disinformation or propaganda campaigns. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 22nd, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. In 2016, a key part of the Russian influence campaign involved the hacking and leaking of emails belonging to the Democratic Party and Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. Journalists at mainstream news outlets rushed to write up the emails without giving adequate context as to how they'd been obtained. So how can the press avoid a similar disaster in 2020? Janine Zaharia, the Carlos Kelly McClatchy lecturer in Stanford's Department of Communication, and Andrew Grotto, director of the Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance, and William J. Perry International Security Fellow at Stanford Cyber Policy Center, teamed up in recent months to write a playbook for reporters facing the dilemma of writing about hacked material or disinformation without participating in a disinformation campaign. My co-host Alina Polyakova and I spoke to Janine and Andrew about their recommendations for reporters, what the American press might be able to learn from colleagues abroad, and how to assess the mainstream media's response to the New York Post's bizarre reporting on Hunter Biden. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 22nd, How to Report on Hacks and Disinformation. Janine and Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. We wanted to start with the basics. You put together uh, in the last few months some really detailed guidelines for how journalists and reporters should think about covering hacks and disinformation. Can you just start us off by explaining to our listeners why you felt such a playbook was necessary? Yeah, thank you, Quinter. It's good to be here. Um, so Janine and I were part of a uh, an information warfare working group that our Stanford colleagues, Amy Secret and Herb Lynn, uh, hosted throughout much of last year. Uh, it was a, an interdisciplinary group of experts uh, and academics drawn from across uh, the Stanford community uh, with disciplines uh, from law, policy, psychology, political science, uh, with the idea of taking a real hard interdisciplinary look at, at this question of, of information warfare and conflict. And Jeannie and I, you know, as, as the, the, the sessions were, were going on, had this mind meld over just how a missing piece of a lot of the policy debate uh, in Washington and elsewhere about how to deal with uh, the downside risks of social media platforms uh, in terms of their ability to spread propaganda was the role of mainstream journalists in picking up stories, uh, reporting on propaganda campaigns, and in some cases being turned into sort of unwitting uh, amplifiers of uh, Russian and other uh, malicious actors' uh, propaganda campaigns. Uh, and so we we decided that we would jump into a project on this and try to develop uh, some actionable guidelines for reporters as well as a, a template for how a news organization might take guidelines and actually bake them into their workflows as a news organization. 
Yeah, so to that end, after um, Andy and I uh, decided we were going to do this, we convened some experts in in Palo Alto um, in the fall, some tech people, some former journalists, and and drew on the research that we had been evaluating from psychology, uh, political science, and law, et cetera, to sort of get a rough draft. We took that draft to, to five major news outlets in New York and D.C. in February of 2020, um, and then released our report in March with the hope that news organizations, like Andy said, could try and, you know, either use our guidelines to inform their own or really just adopt them straight up. Because really what was a key motivator here, and I write this, we wrote this together in the intro, is that the run-up to the 2016 presidential election really illustrated how vulnerable our most venerated journalistic outlets are to this new kind of information warfare, as Andy called it, that reporters are a targeted adversary of foreign and domestic actors who really want to harm our democracy and that they need a plan amid everything else that's going on for how to deal with hack and leaks and other disinformation or propaganda campaigns. So that is a great segue to to my question. In the guide, you talk about helping journalists deal with propaganda which you used to refer to sort of different kinds of concerning information. Can you walk us through how you define propaganda and what different kinds of bad information make it up? Yeah. And I think, you know, one important background point here is that while this working group that Janine and I were involved in focused on information warfare, right, which, you know, is is uh, with, with Russia and other uh, mostly state adversaries in mind, it quickly became clear to us that actually like the way to tackle this problem was to take kind of an all hazard approach in some cases, because when a propaganda campaign appears, uh, it's not always going to be obvious whether it was a foreign actor engaged in you know, some form of, of modern con- you know, digital conflict or a domestic political actor uh, trying to um, reap some political benefit. Uh, so we took an all hazards approach and we thought that was a really important piece to frame our, our report. We define um, propaganda, you know, the sort of three categories that, that you'll often see, or three words you'll often see in, in, in discussions on this issue. You know, one is disinformation, uh, false, uh, deliberately uh, created content to harm a person, a social group, an organization, or a country. Misinformation, uh, another category is false, but but not necessarily created with the intention of causing harm. Uh, and then a third category of malinformation, uh, which is based on reality, but still used to inflict um, harm on a person, a social group, uh, organization, or a country. Doxing is a good example of, of malinformation, you know, because doxing uh, or the release of hack materials you know, involves information that is, well, is often true, uh, but it was it's, it's released to harm someone. And I should say that, that those definitions we drew from uh, UNESCO's uh, good work on this topic. So, yeah, well, Andy and I went back and forth on, you know, the word propaganda. I wasn't initially as comfortable with it, but the idea was to really encapsulate all those various categories with one word. And so with that on the table, um, you mentioned 2016, which is, of course, the the elephant in the room here. I think that 2016 is a, a great kind of case study for what the press shouldn't do in a way, and, and maybe could help listeners understand like, why it's so hard for news organizations to figure out how to deal responsibly with, as you call it, propaganda. So how did the dynamics that we've just been discussing play out in 2016? What did the press do and what did they do poorly? 
Well, maybe I'll start with that. I mean, we had, if you look back at the timeline of it, I mean, when we spoke to news organizations, they were quite defensive whenever we brought up the 2016 example, because they said it was all new, they weren't really expecting it, et cetera, et cetera. And you had reporting in the Washington Post and elsewhere in 2016 about a possible Russian hack of the DNC. And you then had subsequently famous day in October when you had uh, the Access Hollywood tape uh, that was released. And then you you had the sort of this release of the John Podesta emails, et cetera, coming in a one-two punch. And the in a broad strokes, without getting too detailed here, what happened here was that the media, and I'm when I say the media here, I mean the, the, the mainstream legacy, credible fact-based major media, overall, with some exceptions, of course, focused on the what rather than the why. In other words, they focused on the salacious details in the emails, ran with trying to confirm things about Hillary's speeches, put out things that were not really newsworthy, like John Podesta's risotto recipe, just recipe, just mined it for details that would get, you know, eyeballs. And they, when really what the story was, this was a Russian campaign to interfere with our election. And where they really needed to do was focus their resources on that. Now, that doesn't mean that you neglect the newsworthy elements of it. And we can talk about this when we get into the actual guidelines. I mean, we're not saying journalists should not report on these materials. It's naive to think that journalists wouldn't report on newsworthy materials that are, are, are obtained this way, but that the key thing is to really focus on the provenance. They did an amazingly poor job of that in 2016. So so let's talk about the recommendations then. You have these 10 newsroom guidelines for propaganda reporting. So let's just go through them um, and we'll you know pepper in our, our questions as we have them. So first off, you are recommending that newsrooms develop social media guidelines and require reporters to abide by them. I will say, as a, a journalist who sort of felt like I've, I've watched many colleagues struggle with the social media guidelines put up by various institutions, people want to, you know, tweet freely. I was really interested by this, that this was the way that you started off. Talk us through why you think that's important. Yeah, I'll start with this one. You know, when we had the draft, this was actually lower down in the list. We had it. But it was like eight or nine. And um, we went to one of the major news organizations and they said, you got to make you got to make social media number one, because they were struggling with defining their own new uh, guidelines, precisely for the reason that you mentioned. There's sort of these mini rebellions going on in newsrooms where some reporters want to be able to tweet, tweet freely, tweet their feelings, tweet a lot. And so, you know, do you want to be first or do you want to be first responsibly? So the idea is that a top editor would tell the newsroom when there is a hack and leak, no, we are not, do not start live tweeting from this hack or this disinformation because there's an implicit endorsement, right? If you start quoting, um, no, your first instinct needs to be, okay, this is out there. Let's meet and discuss how we're going to approach this. What is this? Are our political team and our national security team working together here? You know, what are we dealing with? There's no need to be first on Twitter when you're dealing with a hack and leak or disinformation situation. That's that's great, Janine. Just to keep kind of going through this a little bit more, because you have multiple recommendations throughout throughout the report. Before we get to the next one, uh, which is reminds journalists that they're a targeted adversary and that they have to see themselves as such and beware. Um, that there are attempts specifically to target journalists' attention and to pull attention from one 
uh, news story to perhaps another news story. But I think it's interesting to remember that, you know, going to your earlier comment, that there's a realization, especially in 2016, that our major news outlets are very vulnerable to these kinds of target attacks and disinformation more broadly or propaganda. There's, of course, other countries have experienced this in a very similar way where you have the media and independent journalists trying to manage it in various ways as well. So in answering the question and the guidelines, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what we heard was happening in France right after the U.S. elections where the French had their presidential elections in 2017. And there was a somewhat similar attempt with this Macron leaks campaign to plant supposedly hacked information and get the news media to report on it in a very similar way uh, that we had the DNC hack in the United States. And what we heard at that time is that the media outlets in France actually sort of informally uh, talked to each other, the major media outlets, and agreed not to report on the information contained in these hacked documents, which of course is the opposite of what happened in 2016 in the U.S. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what you think about that approach and to what extent it's even feasible in the U.S. And, you know, and, and as part of that, how can journalists become better aware that they themselves are targets? One of the things that Andy and I were pushing for when we met with major news outlets, one of the things we floated, okay, was some kind of coordination. And it comes up in the, you know, as a possibility when you're dealing with a disinformation campaign or a hack and leak. And we were just completely rebuffed that the competitive instincts are just too um, ingrained to think of any kind of coordination. Now that said, it doesn't mean that news organizations don't watch each other. And one of the reasons, you know, we focused on the legacy credible major news organizations is because they set the tone. People look to the AP, which we visited, or the New York Times, which we visited, or the Washington Post, which we visited, to to see what they're doing. So when the AP decides, for example, to capitalize Black, well, that becomes the policy at a lot of places. When the New York Times and the Washington Post don't publish the name of the Ukraine whistleblower, then others follow. Now, that doesn't mean that others aren't running crazy. And you certainly have our, our ecosystem, which is multifaceted, polarized, and there are going to be different standards. But whether something enters the national zeitgeist in a certain way really depends on the majors still, I would argue. So what you had in France was, I think, a very admirable kind of recognition that we do not want to be a betters of a foreign disinformation campaign. And they they acted very responsibly, in my view. I don't know that that is going to happen in a formal way here in the U.S., um, but I do think you know, we can talk about this, about what happened, for example, with Hunter Biden, the Hunter Biden in the New York Post, that there was a sign that the majors, whether they're they're not really they're not doing it together, but they're aware of the risks in a way they weren't in 2016. So I, I, I think that, you know, it's also worth observing that the structure of the French media is, is quite different than it is uh, to the structure of the U.S. media, particularly the large uh, kind of national news outlets. In general, the French media uh, receives pretty heavy subsidies from the state, which uh, creates a, a much closer relationship between the government's policy interests, particularly when it comes to sort of these grand questions of, of foreign interference and the integrity of elections um, and, and the news outlets themselves. So, so I, I, there is an important difference there. It's competitive in France, the, the news environment, but it's competitive in a different way than it is here in the United States, where 
we have uh, a First Amendment first that, that creates a lot of space, uh, more space in most cases for uh, journalists to, to operate. The media in the United States is also uh, far less supported by the state. I mean, there, there, you, know, you have a few examples here and there. Public broadcasting, for example, by and large, media in the United States is, is wholly private. And so I want to play that out a little more. How does that how does the privatization of American media play into that dynamic? You you talk about that the you know news organizations are in this situation of kind of being in a prisoner's dilemma where ultimately if nobody reports on bad information everybody's better off but there is an incentive to compete. Like what is it about the sort of the private sector aspect that creates that in a way that there isn't in France? Well, I think, I think it's about norms uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, to come back to Janine's example of, of capitalizing the word black, of the restraint that the major showed in not publishing the name of the whistleblower in the Ukraine matter, you know, th- those were decisions that the profession arrived at independently, but also by virtue of having some shared sense of mission, of integrity, of ethics. And, you know, that, 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 that is, I think, the, 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 the glue that ultimately, uh, you know, binds um, news organizations together. It's also, it's not like they never talk to each other, you know, in the United States. Um, you know, the, it's, it is a small world. Um, Janine, you know, knows this world certainly better than I do. But you know, in our conversations with, with news organizations as part of our outreach for this report, uh, you know, it, it, these, these people know each other. Uh, they talk. They what they don't do, though, is sort of get on a conference call before, you know, reporting on the story and decide, you know, are we going to do this or not? It, the, the, the process is, is really driven by norms that emerge kind of more organically from, from these relationships and from a long history of, of vibrant journalism in the United States. Let me just add, uh, Quinta, I think that one of the things that really worries me looking ahead and at the current moment of journalism is that the, the the financial pressures on news outlets, especially at the mid tier, but you know through you know mid tier, mid sized newspapers, you know, uh, newspapers at the moment when we need credible fact based news reporting the most, whether it be about COVID or the election or race or homelessness, whatever, we really need it right now. Investigative journalism, you know, these these news organizations are hemorrhaging. They don't have the funds, and they. You know, every they have to make every click on their website count for advertising revenue. And so these kinds of pressures can make it harder to make a decision like, okay, we're not going to put those hacked emails up that everybody wants to see. Right. Because it's going to cause less traffic. I mean, there's no doubt that that creates pressure on a private uh, news organization in a way that it doesn't on a public. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, news organizations, I think fundamentally the credible fact-based ones, they want to do the right thing editorially. They want to provide uh, readers and viewers and whatever with the information they need to be informed citizens. I, I truly believe that, but it's definitely a factor. I just, one of the main things is, you know, especially going back to the social media thing, what is the point of, of social media? Why do journalists need to tweet everything in real time I mean, that's something that I think is relatively, I know it is, I know it is relatively new. And I think we need to reevaluate that as an industry. 
Yeah, I think the, the question of why do journalists need to tweet is uh, to tweet, <laughs> one for <right>? the ages. <laughs> um, so, so I want to move on then to, to one of your next principles. So you say that news organizations should break what you call the Pentagon Papers principle. So first off, what is the Pentagon Papers principle? And then why should news organizations break it? So we got this. This is a phrase that we got from our colleague, Phil Taubman, who um, was the New York Times uh, Washington bureau chief and a, a senior editor at the Times for a long time. And the idea is that since Daniel Ellsberg's 1971 leak of the Pentagon Papers, you know, journalists have generally operated under a single rule that once information is authenticated, if it's newsworthy, you publish it. How it was obtained is, you know, of a secondary concern to the information itself. And what we're arguing is that in this new era, when foreign adversaries, you know, are, for example, hacking into political campaigns, leaking material to disrupt our democracy to favor a candidate, you need to abandon this. It doesn't mean that you don't, it doesn't mean that you ignore the hack material if it's newsworthy, but that high up, you really need to focus on the provenance. And so that's really what we're, we're trying to drill into people that, you know, it's not about confirming the details of, you know, even if you authenticate the hacked material, that doesn't give you license to just run with it. And if you go back to, uh, I'll pick on the New York Times for a little bit here, back in 2016, their coverage of the hacked uh, DNC emails, uh, you know, th- there was news reporting, uh, it, you know, it, within, you know, the day or two of the initial uh, dump uh, about, you know, linking it to a Russian disinformation campaign. But then as, as time goes on, you know, the, the providence, uh, the why that Janine has, has emphasized, got buried further and further in their coverage of the content of the, the leaked materials to the point where, it, you know, it became almost like a throwaway line instead of a, a continual reminder to the reader that you are reading this because Russia wants you to. So I really like what you both just laid out in terms of the the need to adapt to the new environment, which doesn't function like the media environment did uh, when the Pentagon Papers came out. And that journalists also have the responsibility to be mindful of that, that intent matters. um, And we have to think about where information comes from rather just than just reporting on what we know is, is true. And so I wanted to pan out once again, a bit more of a comparative perspective, because I can't help but to think about Ukraine. You know, it always comes back to Ukraine in so many different ways. But, but it has often struck me that journalists and citizens in countries like Ukraine and perhaps Taiwan as well seem to have a far more developed critical lens when it comes to disinformation propaganda, because they've been dealing with Russian um, or Chinese information operations for decades. So I'm just curious if, um, as part of your work, uh, when you were coming up with these guidelines, um, if you had the chance to connect with colleagues um, and journalists in some of these frontline states, it's it's telling that some of the first you know, disinformation exposés came from Ukraine, uh, from organizations that pointed out uh, Russian propaganda during the conflict that started to unfold in 2014 in Ukraine. So I'm just curious if you had a chance to kind of get a sense of why does the critical lens seem to be better um, in these countries? Well, I'm I'm not necessarily sure it the critical lens is necessarily uh, sharper. You know, I do know that that you know in, in in some of these countries, you know, there's a lot less you know trust in institutions. 
uh, whether that be the government, whether that be um, the media, and that, that that may translate to some degree of, of critical thinking about what, what is read. Um, on the other hand, you know, conspiracy theories are, are, are very alive and well um, in many of these places, and it may just be that readers are, are sort of sorting in the same way that they do here, are, are increasingly doing in the United States, where if you have one point of view of the world, you go to this or that outlet. If you have a different view, you go to another outlet. But so, I, I, so I, I'm not, I'm not, unless Lena, maybe, maybe you have some, you know, so, some, some data, but I, I, I have not seen the data myself. And so I, I would just, um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, we, we did, you know, consider what, what the audience would be for our report. And we decided that really the core audience has to be uh, the American majors, uh, you know, the, the legacy print and broadcast um, outlets, both because that's the, the the market that we know best, but also because uh, you know there are a lot of differences in in how and uh, how the media operates in different countries. Norms are different. Uh, the relationship with the state is different, and I think I'm, I'm not sure a one set size fits all approach uh, would necessarily work. What may work in the U.S. context may not work in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, there may have to be you know Ukraine specific guidelines that that reflect um you know the media environment there um as well as you know um to, to your earlier point you know how how people consume news and whether they're more or less uh, critical yeah let me just add i think it's a great idea to sort of convene a group of journalists seasoned reporters who have who have been reporting on autocracies for a while but let me remind everyone that it was just a few minutes ago or rather a few years ago where uh, you didn't have a president who lied 20,000 times, right? Or that you had this sort of hostility towards uh, the American media, the calling of the media here fake news. This is all very new under Donald Trump. So the U.S. media, I think, is still operating, trying to operate in a pre-Trump kind of way. And so I think that, yes, in some of these other places that you mentioned, they've had more experience dealing with disinformation from Russia that was also new for us right or or you know dealing with efforts to attack the press and whatnot so I think there is there is a lot to learn there especially in how um, you cover an autocratic type of lie so one of the things that drives me crazy um, you know we're seeing disinformation not and misinformation in all of this not only from Russia but from the president himself and so you still have, Five years into this, since he came down the golden escalator, you have reporters who are live tweeting Trump, even when he says a falsehood. They still haven't learned, you know, what uh, the experts call the truth sandwich of actually leading with what's true and then saying what he's saying and explaining why he's saying it, you know, and explaining how you know it's not true. So these are things that at least the free media in some of these other societies uh, would know instinctively at this point, I believe. So Janine, you just set me up perfectly for the next question I had in mind, which I I looked up uh, an old post I saw in 2017, right before the inauguration of Donald Trump from a Russian journalist in, in medium named um, Alexei Kovalev. And I'm just going to read you a couple of choice excerpts from that. And he frames this as advice to my uh, American colleagues. And it says, this is, I'm just going to quote it. Welcome to the era of bull. 
Uh, facts don't matter. You can't hurt this man with facts or reason. He'll always outmaneuver you. He'll always wriggle out of whatever carefully crafted verbal trap you lay for him. Whatever he says, you won't be able to challenge him. He always comes up with a bag of meaningless factoids, platitudes, and undiluted nonsense. I'll just say nonsense. He knows it's a one-way communication, not an interview. You can't follow up on your questions or challenge him. So he can throw whatever he wants at you in response, and you'll have to swallow it. But your colleagues are there to help you, right? After all, you're all in this together. Wrong. (laughs) Don't (laughs) expect any camaraderie. These people are not your partners or brothers in arms. They're your rivals in a fiercely competitive market. And right now, the only currency in this market is whatever that man on the stage says. Whoever is lucky to ask a question and be the first to transmit the answer to the outside world wins. Don't expect any solidarity or support from them. That's just great. Short excerpt uh, from that article. uh, But I was really thinking about what this says about just the nature, the competitive nature of the media market. Right. And you alluded to this in your earlier comments about how it is all about competition. Increasingly, it's about clicks and whoever reports on that, you know, hot piece of quote unquote news um, or content kind of wins for some in, in the case of some papers. And we'll get to an example of that shortly. I'm just curious to get your response to this, because obviously this is a Ru- independent Russian journalist writing about his experience covering Putin and how in many ways American journalists have to deal with that by covering the U.S. president. Oh, he was writing about Putin. I wasn't writing about the American media covering Trump. So this this was framed as advice. Advice, for right. American it's the same, exactly. Yeah, so here's the thing. Okay, so I covered Washington. I lived in Washington for 10 years, and I covered State Department, the White House. I went to a lot of briefings, okay? And if I had any advice to my White House press colleagues is at some point they've got to learn at least the art of the follow-up, right? That this is not, I mean, that this is not about getting your gotcha question, that when they obfuscate or don't answer, he doesn't answer, you've got to stick with that question, at least if you're going to cover it. Otherwise, this is a meaningless exercise and you're just allowing him to spew these things. You need to be able to jettison the question you bring and, and follow up. And this is why, in part, I think the first debate went off the rails, you know, and in a similar way, the vice presidential debate as well, that the follow-up was not there. But I agree in in mass that there still is, you know, there's not, people are not sure how to cover Donald Trump. There's a fear of being perceived as biased because we're living in this hyper-polarized time. But I, on the other hand, I do think you see some improvement where they're at least saying without evidence, he says this and that. I think it does. Your question um, raises other questions about how effective is fact-checking after the fact, right? How effective is fact-checking Putin after the fact? How much fact-checking is there of Putin, right? I think we could learn from that. So there's there's so much there on the table that, um, and Alina and I want to sort of bring us back at the end to what we've discussed, this New York Post story on Hunter Biden. But before we do that, I want to finish up by making sure that we address um, the last few points of recommendations that you have for journalists. So you have a lot here. In no particular order, you have a recommendation that reporters shouldn't link to disinformation, that there are there should be reporters who specifically cover this beat, 
Um, you also suggest that, you know, reporters should be open about determining the origin of propaganda, that news organizations should learn how to use tools and build muscle for determining where viral content comes from, and that they should also be explicit about it uh, for readers, that they should state that in the stories and even maybe consider having, you know, a little box or a hyperlink on the story kind of reminding readers that the information uh, that's the origin of the story is hacked. And I found this really interesting because it, it sort of strikes me as a way of being more transparent about the process of journalism itself in a way. You're kind of, you're making clear how you got information, what's behind it, what the motivations are. Is that a fair description that you're sort of want to make sure that journalists explain clearly what they're doing to readers who might not otherwise understand? Yeah, look, I think it's, you know, one of the things about establishing provenance is that it's murky, it can take time, it's hard, you're not necessarily going to have the answer immediately. But you're going to have signs that it's hacked, or something's fishy here, or whatnot. And so yes, you need to be transparent with the reader about what you know, and also why it looks like it might be X, and be based on whatever, you know, recent Ukraine propaganda, Giuliani, or whatever, we'll get to that attempt has been. And I think also that has a secondary impact of helping to uh, restore respect for credible fact-based news. Because what's your option, really? You're going to put out a story then that's just the hack, right? I mean, you really, you have to do it this way now. You have to say what you know. I mean, look at someone like David Fahrenthold at the Post, okay, Washington Post. I mean, he won a Pulitzer for using social media as a way to show readers how he gathered his information. Now, when I was working as a beat reporter, this was kind of heresy. You don't want to show people your notebooks and your, you know, all the interviews you do. You just want them to see the beautiful end product. But there's definitely a morphing here. And so I think that being honest and, I mean, as you mentioned, another thing also staffing up in terms of your technical expertise, because there are tools but, you know, reporting on provenance and, and origin is, is, is just, it's another beat like anything else. I mean, there are sources in the government, there are sources in the tech industry, there are social, sources, right, at the social media platforms, there are people who study this at universities. You just have to commit to making that a big part of the story. And I'll, I'll add, I think, you know, one, one, one thread that connects uh, most of these recommendations together is the fact that they they really require a senior management level decision to make them happen, right? So if you think about you know this 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 idea of of trying to ensure that that providence travels with a story just doesn't get you know disassociated from it, you know that 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 kind of of move you know requires uh, you know for example a, a the political you know. Uh, reporters and the national security reporters and the editorial team to come to some decision together about how to do that, right? Because it sort of cuts across these different beats. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I spent uh, before Stanford, I, I was uh, at the White House at NSC, and you know, I, I guess I bring a bit of that experience to, to bear on how I think about problems like this. News organizations are organizations, and uh, you know, they, they they are led by people, managed by people. Reporters obviously have this you know vital function, but they are ultimately employees of a business. And without having management on board in terms of uh, aligning incentives, you know, ac- across the organization, the kinds of changes that we, the kinds of guidelines that we pr- propose in our report aren't going to happen. And so, 
that's one reason why in the report we, we include this this implementation template to really make clear that that the guidelines are great, but they're only guidelines. Uh, if, if an owner's organization wants to breathe life into them, someone at the top needs to step up and make that happen. That's why I think what, what Marty Baron did at the Washington Post recently, uh, such a huge deal, right, where he sent a note to the newsroom with explicit guidance along the lines of what Janine and I have, have laid out. That's, I think that's the way to do it. I wanted to, to sort of close off the, this conversation by talking about something that we've, we've touched on um, a couple times, which is, of course, this New York Post story on Hunter Biden. On October 14th, the New York Post started distributing uh, what it claimed were emails and images from a hard drive of a computer that had been left in a Delaware repair shop claimed to belong to Hunter Biden, supposedly showing uh, corrupt connections between the Biden family and a Ukrainian company called Burisma. There is a lot going on here, and I'm sure we're not going to be able to get to all of it. But just as an additional matter, I wondered if you could walk through, from your point of view, how the press has responded and whether the response is any better than in 2016. Like, does this show us that we've learned anything since then? Yeah. I mean, I was uh, sort of mocking up sort of a grading of the different, the way the different media handled this. And I think in the main, I think they did a spectacular job this time. And I'm very reassured because this is just like, this is like a baby thing, right? This is not, to me, this is the entre- this is the uh, appetizer. I'm worried about what's coming next, Right. So you had like an almost perfect exam- implementation. I'm sure he didn't, it wasn't based because he read our guidelines, but on Vox by a reporter named Andrew Prokop, who, you know, really led with the whole, you know, provenance question of, you know, what's going on with this hard drive? What this is actually looks like a, you know, Trump is, they're trying to Giuliani, you know, like leading with the, what is this? Why is this not with, you know, did Hunter facilitate a meeting or did he plan to or not? I mean, they get to that later, but sort of talking about whether the emails may not even be authentic and sort of looking at it with a real skeptical eye. So you saw a lot of stories like that. The Washington Post uh, had a story by Glenn Kessler, the fact checker that went through the, all of it, um, the suspicions about where it came from, but also the actual allegations. Um, And then, you know, from me, from my side, it, you know, it looks like they're rolling out stuff now in the New York Post about China, and there's going to be a drip, drip effect of this. But the story is, you know, moving on now to I think how social media related to the story in terms of suppressing it. I I, I, I agree with you. I, I do. I think that the, the in the main the the, the response uh, from the, the legacy media has been much better this time than in 2016. I will say though, uh, you know, our, our first recommendation in, in our report, the first guideline on, on having social media guidance, uh, that was still the one area where you saw several very well-respected uh, reporters uh, trip up who began tweeting, the, you know, the the post, the New York Post story, and in one case, even um, a, a a reporter um, had his account temporarily locked by Twitter uh, under the new guidance they they put out relating to, to blocking the New York Post link. So, you know, it, we've got, it all kind of comes back to social media still on some level for, for both uh, reporters and for the platforms themselves. Yeah, I was, I was upset about that to see some reporters with major high numbers of followers doing that live tweeting from the New York Post story. But I think they, 
quickly corrected themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, again, the perfect transition to what we really wanted to get your thoughts on. It's obviously a developing story, but at least initially, uh, you know, Twitter and then Facebook restricted the sharing basically suppressed the ability for this New York Post story to go viral. Um, and they cited a somewhat ambiguous policy they have on not amplifying any or not having in their platform any content that is based on ill-begotten sources, in this case, hacked materials from emails, supposedly. But that produced an immediate backlash from one side of the political spectrum. And I think it's left the companies a bit in a in a lurch because on the one hand, we have been asking these companies to do something to curb the spread of misleading information, hacked information on their platforms since 2016. And here they are responding, you know, pretty quickly. And I think Twitter has been very much at the forefront of setting out a set of quite aggressive policies to start to curb misinformation amplification on their on their platform. And then it seems to me like they do the thing we've been asking them to do. Um, and then immediately, you know, there's threats to subpoena the executive of Twitter, et cetera. Again, developing story. We recorded this um, almost a week ago. But just your initial response as the story was breaking to how the companies responded. Should they have responded like this or could they have done something better? So... No, I, my, my, my strong hope is that, you know, the spine of, of, of Twitter and Facebook and, and, and the others uh, remain steel up because there's more to come. Uh, as Janine said, this is the appetizer. You know, I also think it's worth pointing out that you know, there were lots of <laughs> – there are a lot of red flags about the story, and, you know, the, the, the computer story. And, uh, you know, I, at this point now, you know, Rudy Giuliani, Trump – you know, they lost any benefit of the doubt when it comes to, you know, accepting what they say at face value. There's there's a reason why I think people don't trust uh, you know, why, why the level of trust in in this story is low, and that's partly to do with the fact that the Trump that President Trump and his uh, circle uh, tell lies all the time. And I should also add, I mean, you know, the, the, the criticism has come from one side of the political aisle on this. You know, it, it's it's it, there's certainly no bipartisan critique, um, and uh, that. That I think is is noteworthy as well. I mean, for me, I was um, frankly I was a little bit surprised about Twitter taking as aggressive action as they did, as swiftly as they did. Um, but I was also pleased to see that they are taking um, hack and leak disinformation seriously, and that you know they they're learning from 2016 that they just can't allow themselves to be hijacked by by bad actors. That said, I think they need to go further to clarify what they mean by ill-begotten or illicitly obtained, that they need to make it clearer that when there's suspicion that the material is stolen or, or, or something like that, um, that that's where they're going to draw the line. Because the problem is the social media is, is in general is a cesspool of disinformation and misinformation. And, and they're gonna, you're, it's going to raise questions about, okay, so you're going to leave up that video that's, you know, manipulated of Nancy Pelosi, but you're going to take that, you're going to block the New York Post story? Or, you know, what about Anthony Fauci, who was not speaking about Donald Trump in that ad, totally taken out of context? I mean, it's endless. So I think they're going to need to clarify all that and also decide whether going forward, they're going to resort to sort of strong labeling, et cetera. 
Um, maybe the social media companies know more than they're saying about this material. But I think uh, for everybody's benefit, they just need to be a little clearer about uh, the guidelines in this um, very important area. Amen to that. On, on that note, uh, Janine and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.